Hi, you're listening to Manufactured, a podcast about sustainability and the making of fashion. I'm your host, Kim von der Weert, student of human rights, turned garment factory manager, turned sustainable fashion critic. On this show, I talk to some of the most integral people who manufacture what we wear. They aren't the people you see in fashion magazines. They're the people behind closed doors working in fashion supply chains. This episode is part of a mini-series called Crossover Moments, where we explore key moments of personal transformation. We talk to industry experts about the pivotal moments that led them to question and ultimately reject or let go of conventional approaches to sustainable fashion, breaking defaults and choosing alternatives. In this episode, my co-founder Jessie Lee and I talked to Dr. Divya Jyoti about her crossover moments. Divya is a lecturer at Lancaster University, but in a prior life thought she'd pursue a career in factory management. She's been a close collaborator for several years. From viewing the challenges in the supply chain as primarily technical and capacity-based, like, for instance, codes of conduct, to realizing the deeper systemic issues at play Divya's crossover moments emerge from a shift in perspective. She describes her realization that sometimes things done in the name of sustainability can actually have a dehumanizing effect. If you're new to this mini-series and wondering what a crossover moment is, I encourage you to go back to the series intro episode where we talk about what this term means and why we thought it would be interesting to explore. Divya, you had mentioned that there isn't one particular moment, but a series of moments that gradually shifted your perspective on what sustainability should mean. Do you want to start by describing the context of where you were, what kind of position you had at that time, and what were some of the sort of ideas or assumptions that you had about sustainability that led to these crossover moments going into these experiences? I was in India. And my role and my job really, uh, and, and the work I was involved in, my day job, was to work with brands and other organizations to help create more sustainable supply chains, specifically factories. So I was, you know, working within what was known at the time, the social compliance paradigm. And the underlying assumption, which is what I think eventually became dislodged, was that there was a particular idea about what a compliant factory or a responsible factory should look like, what should it be like. Those ideas were embedded in documents known as codes of conduct or standards, various such communication which came forth. And it was always portrayed, and that was the part of the puzzle I was serving, it was portrayed as a technical problem. By technical, I mean it was a capacity building project that I was involved in. Suppliers do not have capacity. If they have the capacity, if they have the resources, you know, they can become compliant factories, right? So my work in my role was to go there and train people. The idea was that if brands commit, and how did they commit? They put in resources, they put in money, which was hard cash in getting, you know, experts, me and my organization being one of them to develop content, which will then help generate that kind of training 
also encouraging. So the idea again within the supply chain was if the buyer wants it, it will get done. The control and the power rests with the buyer as an entity within that you know chain of command, if I'm to use that term, within that relationship. And if they say, we want a clean factory, we can get it done. We want a green factory, we will get it done. Here are our standards, take these standards. Okay, now we do not know how to interpret these standards. We have a capacity issue. Okay, we are sending experts in who will go and help you you know, develop this training program. They will orient your staff members, you know, and they will give you guided support. There is also some advisory available. This is how you make these documents and how will we measure that we are getting there is by certain reports. So we look at these reports, which say, okay, this is a good factory. We'll recognize that work. And audits were only one part of the problem. And this is the time where we were talking about creating, you know, more compliant and better improved factories where people had started recognizing that, you know, just going and checking within factories is not really the solution. So you need to address the capacity issue within factories. And I think that was the guiding assumption. And for up to five years, I very, very strongly believed in that, that, you know, it is about building capacities. Till I switched into another mode where my assumptions were challenged in one particular moment, which was a supplier who said that all of this has nothing really to do with the workers or even us beyond the point. You mean all of the like social compliance stuff that you were doing has nothing to do with the workers? Yeah, 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 yeah. His specific phrase was that these codes are not for the workers. <laughs> uh, and I was talking about sustainability standards and brands codes. I think that was the first moment where I became conscious and then I embarked on another journey where it was a personal decision of, okay, to understand more about what's happening, perhaps I need to, you know, enter the space in a researcher's capacity. And that's what happened with my PhD journey where those assumptions were unpicked and emerged. And I think what I want to, and we can, you know, then get into the details broadly say is that when we talk about achieving sustainability within the factory. And I'm talking about now very specifically particular tools which have become really, really common. Certain assumptions which underwrite those tools or means to actually influence and affect change within, you know, factories, within lives of people, they are all based on material indicators. They completely miss out the experiential indicators, the people aspect of it. Because the disillusionment which set in for me was as the more I understood about how these were enacted was the impact it was having on the people within the factory. So we have a particular idea of a clean, compliant perfect factory which is embedded and it is all based on you know international codes and guidelines and various conventions and it embodies you know almost through text a particular idea and it is meant to be enacted but when the enactment happens it is actually creating experientially often much more challenging situations for those people who are involved in enacting those ideas and i think that is something which I do not necessarily have the answer to because it's an ongoing quest. It always continues. But the question is around the depersonalization, the dehumanization. I don't know what you know phrase we would want to use to describe it, the invisibilization. But the one assumption which it 
dislodged and which is what you know i want to kind of mark out for our conversation here is that this is a technical problem and we can have a technical solution to it we cannot see it only as a resource and a material problem necessarily because we cannot not think about the people involved the people involved in trying to interpret what the particular factory should be like and the people whose name we are trying to enact most of it which is then the workers on the on the factory floor what's the opposite of a technical problem for you something which also incorporates or is defined by also experiences so it's not just materials what do you mean material time resources documents something which misses out the lived experiences basically something which misses out the experiential reality of these phenomena and these practices so the opposite to a technical solution would be something that is sensitive to how humans experience it jesse do you have any clarification questions or things you want to ask just about the setting and the context no it's quite clear i'm curious to hear more details or those goals are actually irrelevant to the workers they're not helping the goals is not for workers but then you talk about your phd journey that the assumption checking journey that you realized oros are not technical problems but people treated as technical problems and try to give technical solutions do you have experience human experience detail to describe this exact moment who said what or what happened that you realized it's not a technical problem it shouldn't be treated as a technical problem i was there on the factory floor and there were you know workers who had different kind of roles right so people are helpers on the assembly uh, line people are sewing machine operators there are people who are you know within the finishing doing those jobs that are operating all kinds of machines there were people whose job was to actually help out but because they were running around what became added implicitly to their job role was to make sure that the lines were clean that you know all the waste was actually inside the particular waste bags that everybody was you know seated in a particular way that people were wearing their slippers the slippers were not out you know all of these rules everyday rules which constitute what is a properly functioning factory but this was an added part of their job description which was actually just assumed and verbally communicated they were still the machine line helpers but they were doing the role of you know people with this additional pair of eyes on the shop floor to ensure that everything was in order and the kind of stresses it was creating when they were like if we have to run around we have to run around doing everything there was something which was not proper they were pulled up they were pulled up if the lines were not being fed on time if the accessories were not available because it's their job to make sure that the line is running <laughs> properly so that the pieces are produced right they have a helping role which is anyways invisibilized when we think of a factory we think about people on the machine stitching and about people supervising but not so much about this invisible helper who's probably not even technically you know fully trained to be a skilled operator so perhaps on the lowest grade becoming suddenly responsible to be the eyes of the surveillance to actually enact the factory which has been imagined in the text you know written in a document which is known as a standard or a code of conduct and their stress i mean forget about the fact that that labor is invisible and is not valued either in terms of time or monetarily or even you know through a designation yes what they got as a 
was a pat on the back, you know, by the managers. But the deeper problem is that it's not even the managers who can directly control this, because even for them, this is an additional part of the role. They are HR people. They are industrial engineers. They are all doing this in addition to. And I think that's something which seems to me as something which is missing in our conversations. And whether in my current work, you know, within the research context or when I work with the industry in various ways, I cannot really square that piece of the puzzle, which is why I wanted to talk about that, that we want to create sustainable factories. We have images of it, but when we are thinking about enacting it, what more do we have to do and what do we have to do it differently? And to place it into the context, the way I, I speak about it actually in my thesis is going down to thinking about SAM values, right? We have standard allowed minutes for a particular operation, which is governed by industry operations. And, you know, there is a whole science which goes behind it as to what should be the ideal costing for a particular product based on an ideal time of production. Is that ideal time, which we believe is ideal enough to produce a garment responsibly? And if not, then what would it mean? And I think that is something which, if we have to put a call out, that is where I would really encourage research industry experts to actually start thinking about what does it really mean to make a garment which is, you know, more compliant, more ethical, you know, compared to the rest. So, yeah, I know it was a bit of a long answer, but I do not know if it offers any more perspective. Jesse, I want to ask you what feelings or emotions or images come to mind as you listen to Divya's experience? Does her experience resonate with you? Her experiences resonate a lot to my experiences. As for the feelings, I felt a bit ridiculous and also a bit angry. Actually, I think quite angry. <laughs> I think it's more like I feel people who have decision power involved into DVS experiences are a little bit lazy and arrogant. I feel that arrogant. That they were so arrogant, they believed it's a capacity problem. They believed as long as you change the settings, everything will be done. Every piece is well fall into the part. And the way they get involved into this improvement that they believed is to just put cash on the table. As if the only thing missing here is just money. So they believe the factories are not clean enough, not compliant yet, and not sustainable enough. Let's just hire some experts and go to the factories and set up some documents. And the factories just need to follow those documents, those processes, those steps, then everything will be done. So for me, that is a kind of arrogant attitude. I don't see human involved. They don't feel it's necessary to get involved to have a human relationship. It's similar as auditing, if you think about it. Certifications and auditings just quantify everything they can, but they cannot define human factors. Basically, in a factory, if the management and the workers have a good relationship, or if the work life is kind of good, the question we should ask is, what guaranteed is that? Is that a very strict rules and regulations can guarantee a good relationship between management and employees or it's something else? For me, the regulations and the rules can make people feel safe, but not necessarily guarantee a good relationship, a qualified work life in the workplace. A good work life has to be come out from sort of connections, sort of relationships. And that is exactly the part that audit cannot quantify it, so cannot audit it. And those documents, those technical solutions are just somehow from a very lazy viewpoint removed this involvement. 
and just believe the documents and the money can do the work. I'm struggling to sort of pinpoint this like humanization point. What I mean by that is, when I hear Divya, you share your stories. What's running through my mind is that this whole capacity building approach, this codes of conduct approach, this also auditing because that's one angle or aspect of it, basically locates responsibility for the bad stuff that's happening in apparel supply chains with the supplier, with the factory management, and that for me it's like as opposed to with the system. With the highly inequitable system, within which the factory operates, so what we're saying is, it's the factory that has to change. It's the factory whose behavior has to change, and if we can change the factory's behavior, then our problems will be solved. As opposed to saying it's the world around the factory that has to change in order for the factory to be able to behave in a different way. Where I'm struggling to make the sort of conceptual connection is. On the one hand, you're saying we have to humanize. We have to sort of look at how these people are actually experiencing an issue. We have to make that less invisible, more visible. But on the other hand, something that I'm wondering is actually should we just be shifting our focus entirely away from the supplier or the people within that factory? To the world around it, and I, I know in the last episode I was sharing with you that I was reading how to be an anti-racist by Kendi. I came across a term that I'd never heard before, which was assimilationist racist. Basically, to say that in the context of racism, a person of color has the capacity to become equal if they are given certain support or given certain things to help them along, which is still to say that they are inferior, right? They are currently inferior, but have the potential to be equals if we give them the right stuff. And that's kind of how I feel like this whole thing that we've just been talking about, like that's what it's doing. Because it still locates responsibility in, in the example of this term with the person of color, in our example with the factory, instead of saying actually it's the inequity of the world around this person or the supplier or whatever that is sort of like keeping them unequal. You know, you can't say that the fact that they're not equal is their own fault. Basically, is what I'm trying to say. I don't know. <laughs> You know, I think that is very interesting, Kim, because the point you are touching on is, and and partly I think is because. A factory is located in a commercial relationship, right? There is a particular transaction, and in that relationship is where a factory, which is an organization producing garments, actually becomes a supplier factory. So the moment you enter that relationship, I think there is an inherent power dynamic which comes in. And yes, we are talking about changing the world around the factory, but what are we actually talking about changing? And that is when I try and talk about bringing the human perspective in, is to actually recognizing that that particular factory which is producing garments is not an invisible black box like Jesse's buying house, but is constituted by people who are enacting what we want produced. And this is where I think we are struggling as an industry to actually involve them in a conversation 
but even those conversations and we know that from you know various experiences as individuals and also as broadly as industry even those conversations are unequal right you were talking about there is an intention of bringing those perspectives in and i think nobody is doubting the intention but i think maybe we need to almost go back and reexamine the assumptions which we are using to constitute whatever we characterize as you know ethical fashion or sustainable fashion and within that then begin to think about these conversations because the way it is enacted you know a factory and a buyer supplier relationship is enacted through a contract right and always that contract is one sided it is not a two way contract a supplier cannot ever comment on any of the terms and conditions they have to accept the terms whatever comes given they are almost grateful they are expected to be grateful to be receiving that contract because now it will generate employment you know for the people wherever the factory is located and they have business to do so they are just supposed to accept it with gratitude i think that in itself within the industry is a questionable practice but i think the moment you become a supplier factory i think you are almost surrendering and accepting that there is a part differential and there is your remit to do anything kind of gets defined and maybe that's where the conversation needs to happen i i just want to kind of underline jessie's point about you know anger <laughs> because i think that is what we need to feel angry about how we are doing things we all want to create responsible fashion there is so much of resources which goes in and when i say you know capacity building i think it's the whole gamut of audit which then we recognized is a problem so let's have a cooperative paradigm let's try and you know train suppliers and do events train the workers include the workers talk about worker voice so we kept expanding conceptually the remit of okay how do we generate a more responsible better factory and we are still there we haven't really transgressed from that moment in time we have expanded so it is now also including the environmental issues and all the other that we are trying to integrate and link the environment and the social indicators but we are still there as an industry right now as we speak and which is why coming back to your point kim around this inequity that the factory is a part of the system but then how do we maybe redefine the way the factory is in that system maybe that is a question we need to begin asking and the only urge i have and the hope i have and the desire i have and literally the call i want to put out is we kind of take the people in and not once again make the factory as that invisible box which will somehow produce things and things will get done and maybe you know begin to think about it slightly differently it does make sense it does make sense yeah kim What you said, I felt quite resonated to what uh, Divya said just now and what you said earlier. It also reminded me what you asked me a question in my episode that can they see and once they see, are they willing to make a change or are they capable to make a change? But first, the question: Can they see? I think I call it as a power illusion. I don't think they can see, especially after Divya just shared what she shared. That I'm not saying only buyers, but anybody. So buyers are. Powerful positions, they have decision power, but also some activists. If you have bigger power, making your narrative louder than any other narratives, then you have a bigger power than others. And once you are on that position, I don't think you are able to see the invisible things within that system, simply because you are on the position that those things are invisible for you. Then 
how to get out of it. I mean, like DBS story, those buyers, they have a very good intentions. They want to make the factories compliant and sustainable. And the way they make it is they believe we just need to enable the factories, so capacity building. So on their positions, can they see the human factors? Can they see the things that are invisible to, for them? I, I don't think they can. I don't think they can because they are right in the system and the system are built in a way, remove those factors from the tables. So how to solve that? And I was just thinking about the one question Divya asked, what can we do more to enable a factory to be sustainable? I want to change that question. I think the solution is to change the question to, when you look at a factory, when you look at a situation, you want it to be more sustainable. The right question you should ask is, what shall we remove from the picture so that factory can be sustainable by itself? It's not what you should add in more. You are out of the factory. Let's say factory is a system. You are out of that factory. You are out of their context and you still want to add more. So before you add in more, maybe you should ask, what can you remove? What is the things we need to remove so that the factory can do things within their own ownerships and within their capacity and can make things better? So it's not we people, everyone out of factory context should do more. It's we, everyone out of factory context, look at that factory and ask, what shall we remove? What are the things block their capacity so that they can do things within their capacity to make it better already? Yeah, that's a very powerful thought, Jesse, in terms of what can you remove? Because again, because, you know, this is about personal moments. I remember when I had to go in, I actually felt like I was a burden on the factory while I was going in to kind of, you know, give all of this nice material, do those trainings. They were just so caught up in that, you know, day job and so busy that I was an added burden in terms of the time I took from them. Even trying to, you know, I disrupted the production schedules when, you know, few workers had to come into the training room for me to organize a training. They had to kind of generate that kind of space and make it available. And we were dealing with, you know, factories of all capacities. Yes, there were larger ones, you know, which had a lot of infrastructure, but some of the smaller ones, they had just one person who had to do HR, but who also was responsible for brand liaison. And, you know, I was kind of coming because I was a part of a project and had a project with the brands coming in on their behalf. So I think when we think about sustainability, maybe it is not about adding more to the existing system, rather removing bits. I think that's a very, very powerful thought that you've generated. I absolutely love this. <laughs> well, it's almost like it's a really simple switch, right? And Jesse, you tell me if I got it right or not, or if I'm misinterpreting, but it's almost a switch from like, how do I control or more effectively control what somebody else does to asking, how does my behavior impact you? I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. That if you ask, how does my behavior impact you, then you're looking at what burdens can I take away? Like, what's your load? What are you carrying? that's maybe visible or invisible, as we've been talking about, probably mostly invisible. Tell me the invisible and visible parts of your load and how can I change or adapt my behavior to lighten that load, basically, which is a very different approach to saying, how can I help you be a different way? <laughs> yeah, that's an absolute switch from a top-down to a more equal position. Switching from I give you orders, I tell you what's useful, I help you to let's have a conversation. 
please tell me, do tell me what you need. And let's switch from technical problem to a human-oriented position. All right. Anything that you guys want to say that you haven't had a chance to say? I just want to say that I'm kind of just... This is just very, very, very interesting. I'm just so grateful <laughs> to be talking to both of you. And I love the way you've put it because I think this applies to all relationships. And I know you were talking about a different context, you know, when you were reading out from the book. But I think this approach of how can I unburden you from individual relationships to organizational, I think if we can almost enter that paradigm and try and work alongside it, we might be able to affect, you know, just the way we are used to doing things. Because the challenge with the current approach is we put in so much of effort, energy, and also emotional investment. I mean, a lot of us who are sustainability professionals do it with so much of zeal and enthusiasm because we want to change and then we feel stuck because there are limitations everywhere. But I think that's because our starting premise is, okay, we are going out there to help, right? Instead of really redefining and I think that will have implications in the way again connecting back to in one of the episodes where we spoke about the KPIs and measuring the what and forgetting the how we are so obsessed with those certain metrics and indicators that we do not necessarily again bringing this human side in if that was to happen maybe what we will do is not necessarily begin with the fixed set of indicators but actually work together so actually let's make nice strong beautiful looking garments you know and find a way to do that in the most responsible manner than just the way we approach the whole relationship thanks for listening to manufactured i've been your host kim von der Weert, and if you learned something new from this episode and want to support the show come say hi to me on linkedin or drop me an email on kim at manufacturedpodcast.com And of course, subscribe, rate, and review us on the podcast app you're listening to this episode on. Take a look at the episode description for all the details and stay tuned for more.